You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be with you today in worship and so thankful for these guys just pointing us to Bible truths as we sing. Um, I love seeing our stage full of members of our church. Uh, We say we want to be elder-led, but member-ran, and we want everybody to use their giftings for God's glory to build up the body, as Ephesians 4 tells us. And I love seeing that happen. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. Open your Bibles if you have a Bible. If you don't have one, grab one. There's some right around you. Would love for you to open it so you can follow along with us today. This is the text that the Lord in his great providence has given us to focus on this morning as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. He has decided that today, this is the text we will focus on. And this is the inerrant, all-sufficient, infallible, inspired, eternal word of God. Think about that. When you read these words right now, ask yourself, do I believe that? Do I believe that these words are God's very words? The reason why we do what we do in the way that we do it for an hour, once a week, look at the word. You do a lot of other things for an hour, don't you? Right? You can lose an hour quick. Once a week, we look for an hour at this book and just explain what it says because of what we believe about this book, that it's the word of God. And therefore, it's got power to save and to sanctify, to save the lost and to sanctify the believer, right? And so do you believe that as, we about, as we're about to read this? It's a good question for you to ask yourself. Because only when you really believe what this is will you pay attention to it as you should. So let's read it. Luke 18, 35 through 43. We got a lot to do this morning. So buckle up and we got to move fast, okay? While also take the time necessary to point out all these truths. Let's do it. You ready? 35 through 43, follow along as I read. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, 
Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. What a section. So what we're seeing here in this particular passage is this. You ready? Here's the main point the authorial intent, what is meant by God, and Luke as the author as the main teaching of this section. Jesus is continuing to confirm his Messiahship through a divine act of mercy. Let me say it again. Jesus here is continuing to confirm his Messiahship through a divine act of mercy. That's what's really happening here. That's the main point. That's where we are in this journey through Luke. That's what's intended in these verses. And this is what's actually happening among the disciples and among Jesus and among the crowds, among Israel, the Jews. That's what's happening. This is the doctrine being made known. In other words, Luke now is piling up evidence. Evidence. As we near Jerusalem, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic expectations. Here, he's revealed as the Messiah through a merciful Situation with a blind beggar. He's identified as the Messiah as he shows mercy to a blind man. That's what's happening. So I've entitled the message appropriately, the son of David shows mercy. Right? That's what's happening here. He's the Messiah revealed through an act, an event. That's exactly what's happening here. That's where we are on the journey. Jesus is the Messiah, evident through his authority to save and heal. Now, I want you to understand this. Jesus right now is approaching Jerusalem. And therefore, he's approaching his suffering. That's what happens in Jerusalem to Jesus. And his messianic claims, 
He's the Messiah. He's the divine one. He's the Savior. He's the King. He's the uh, fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He's the, the one who is to come and, and uh, restore Israel, restore God's people. His claims are becoming now more explicit and they're becoming now more public at this point, okay? And they have been public, but the direct confirmation and confession of, of his Messiahship, along with his authority to confirm it, is becoming more explicit and more public. You see, the public rumblings about his identity are swelling. Imagine like a balloon with water in it. It's just, it's really filling up big right now. It's about to pop. It's swelling, it's increasing. The days of commanding his disciples to remain silent are behind him. The days of telling the disciples, tell no one this, are past. That ain't happening anymore. It's time to suffer his fate. It's time to be killed. And if you remember, the first nine chapters of Luke's gospel, Luke just presented us with testimony after testimony after testimony proving Jesus to be the Christ. You remember that? The first nine chapters of Luke, if you say, what, how does Luke, what's the book of Luke's divided by? How, how is it, what's the divisions? What's the sections of this whole thing? Well, the first nine and a half chapters are simply Witness after witness, testimony after testimony of Jesus being the Christ. That's, that's the point of the first nine and a half chapters of Luke, right? And, and you know this because it, it turns a corner in Luke chapter nine with Peter's confession. You remember this? Jesus asked him this, who do you say that I am, Peter? And my thing's coming off here. And Peter says, you're the Christ. Boom. Over, turning the page, it's settled. He's the Messiah. At that point, we're moving forward. Now he's going to tell of his suffering, and then he's going to hit the road to Jerusalem and train his disciples. From chapter 9, verse 51, through 19, 28. Right? And so we've established this. But remember what Jesus told Peter right after he established this. He strictly charged them and commanded them to do what? Tell this to no one. Why? Because the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And it's not time for that yet, right? His messianic expectations the Jews' messianic expectations are going to lead to his rejection and his suffering because he's not the Messiah that they expect. You know, for this to happen, Jesus is telling them, remain silent, and when it's time, we'll let the world know explicitly, and these rumors about me are going to continue to swell, and then it's going to be time for my death. And as, a, and as an aside, I want to point out this to you. In Luke chapter 9 here, when Jesus says he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, Jesus doesn't just command 
Peter to tell no one, right? Peter says, you're the Christ. It doesn't say Jesus commanded him. It says he commanded them. He commanded the disciples. We know back in chapter nine that the disciples believed he was the Christ, right? And this gives us insight into last week's message. We're at the end of chapter 18, uh, here, verse 34. Just look at your Bible. Remember this last week? The disciples understood none of these things. Remember that? It wasn't that they didn't understand that he was the Christ. They believed that. We saw that back in chapter 9 when Peter confessed it. It said they didn't understand how this Messiah would suffer. Why? How would that happen? That doesn't make any sense. That's what they didn't understand. How would this fulfill the scriptures? Do you understand? As the Christ, he's the king. He's the king of, of God's people. He's the victorious king. How would a king whose kingdom would last forever die? That doesn't make any sense. Like that wouldn't make any logical sense. That the king who would reign forever as God's king would be defeated and die. So it's not that they didn't believe that he's the Christ. They didn't understand how this was going to work. You understand that? That's what they couldn't comprehend And now here in Luke chapter 18, where we're at in this particular passage, this public confession is being made about him, about who he is, about his messiahship, and he's not hiding it anymore. And they're going to understand that he is the messiah, but he will suffer. They're starting to hear this publicly. And understand this from Jesus. This is actually in these verses that we're looking at, the first public, directly messianic confession about his identity. It's the first time this is actually happening. And listen now, it's happening as he's approaching where? Jerusalem. Why? Because it's time to die. It's time to die. It's time to be rejected. It's time to suffer as the Passover lamb, right? But there's no mistake. He's the king. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. But that should be no indication that he's a fraud. This was God's plan for the Messiah to die. We see that even in Acts 2. It says this. Jesus was delivered up according to the what? Definite plan and foreknowledge of who? God. This was the plan. He's the king. All these themes are coming together right now in Luke. He's the king. He's the Messiah. That's been determined. He's the Christ. He's the fulfillment of the scriptures. How's that going to work? That he's going to suffer? We don't understand that, but let's make sure that you understand that he is truly the king. This was the plan, right? I mean, all of this is working together. He's going public. They're going to reject him so that he could fulfill the plan. Right now, all of this is coming together before we enter Jerusalem. He's approaching his suffering. He's confirming his Messiahship. And this is all happening in this passage through a divine act of mercy. So, listen now. He's spoken of his kingdom at the end of 17. He's spoken about what's required to enter the kingdom in 17 and into 18. He's talked about the reward of entering his kingdom in chapter 18. He's predicted his sufferings and how they'll be the fulfillment of the scriptures. And now he's making clear, even though I'm going to suffer, Make no mistake about it. I'm the king. I'm the anointed one. The fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The Messiah, the Christ. Make no mistake about it. The disciples might not understand it, but I'm going to continue to confirm it. And you need to know that. You need to know that. And he's going to confirm it here. 
He is, listen now, the authoritative, divine, foretold Messiah. The blind man's gonna publicly confess it. You're gonna see his authority through the healing and that's gonna prove it, right? And this should lead you to, listen now, believe in him. There is one man who provides salvation and it is Christ. And Jesus is the Christ. This should cause you to cry out for mercy from him. There's only one name under heaven by which men must be what? It's Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through who? Him. He's showing this right now. He alone has the authority and the power to save, to to forgive you of your sins, that you would be forever in heaven with him. He's the, he's the only one who has the power and authority over death. He's showing that right now. He suffered, but that doesn't mean he was a fraud. It means that was the plan of God to forgive you of your sins. Your response must be to cry out for mercy. You have no condition on your own that would merit yourself before him. There's no, you have nothing that would make you acceptable by God to receive salvation. You cry out for mercy. I mean, all of this is coming together right now. And we're going to see it. So let's move into the division of it. How this doctrine, Jesus confirming his Messiahship through a divine act of mercy, how this arises out of the text. You know what exposition means? Exposition means to um, expose or explain, but it's, what, uh, it's what's arising out of the text, right? We don't put anything into it. Imposition means that we would put something into it. Exposition says all we're doing here is showing what's coming out of it. It's already in there. We're just showing it, drawing it out through exegesis, which is like digging it out. And then exposition, just what rises out of the text, right? That's how you study the Bible. It's already in there. We're just understanding the meaning, right? And so these points, right? Who cares about these points? These points are just summaries of verses, right? Within the text to make clear what's arising out of the text, right? I'm just summarizing certain verses. So you see as this progression takes place that this is what's being taught within this is passage. So I've given these three points in order to help you see what's being taught in this text. We see first, number one, the setting in verses 35 through 37. We see number two, the solemn plea in verses 38 through 39. And we see number three, the saving in verses 40 through 43. That's what we're seeing in this text. And this text is making clear Jesus is the Messiah and it's showing us this through the divine act of mercy. This is public and we are approaching Jerusalem. He's confirming it here. There's a setting, there's a solemn plea from a blind man and there's a saving. And we conclude from this text, he's the Christ, right? That's what's happening here. So let's show this to make it clear one at a time. Number one, what we see is the setting, verses 35 through 37. As he draws near, follow along in the text. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside doing what? Begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth 
is passing by. That's what's happening. That's the setting. Now, there's a lot under the surface. You ever you think it's crazy that in, in six verses or so, God has so much packed underneath this surface? I mean, there's so much here that you don't even know yet. You're about to find out. You don't even know yet. And there's only a couple sentences in these two verses. And to treat it rightly, to understand it rightly, we got to know what's behind all of this, right? As he drew near to Jericho, verse 31 told, tells us, um, if you look up just a few verses, he was going up to where? Jerusalem. All right, you, gotta, you know this. He's going from Jericho up to Jerusalem. He's approaching Jericho now, right? Now, you got to make note here that there's parallel accounts in this, to, to this particular passage. If you look in Matthew 20, 29 through 34, don't look there now, just write it down. Matthew 20, 29 through 34, and then Mark 10, 46 through 52, those are what's called the parallel accounts in the other synoptic gospels. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, Luke, where this text, this event, this exact event is also being made known, okay? So those are the parallel accounts. Now, it's important because here, as we see that he's drawing near to Jericho, Matthew's account tells us that they were accompanied by a large crowd. How do you know? Well, because Matthew just says it. A great crowd, what? Followed him. All right, we got a picture here. There's a large crowd with him. Jesus has come down from Galilee. He's He's taking this route, listen, listen close. He's taking this route through Perea, okay? It's on, the, it's on the east side of the Jordan River, okay? If you picture this Jordan River coming straight down, he was up in Galilee, he's taking this route. Okay, he's going east of the Jordan, he's avoiding traveling through where? Anybody know? Samaria, right? That would be the other route. Then what's he's, what he's gonna do is he's gonna, listen now, recross the Jordan, Later on, near Jericho, this is a typical route of the Jews. Instead of going the straight shot through Samaria, they would go around through Perea. They would cross the Jordan near Jericho, and then they would make this six-hour ascent up to Jerusalem, right? And that was about 18 miles from Jerusalem, Jericho was. So here's the deal. Jordan, the Jordan River, then you got six miles from the Jordan is Jericho, then you got from Jericho, 18 miles is to Jerusalem. And Jericho's located on this major highway to, to Jerusalem, right? And you, I told you this a couple weeks ago, Jericho's 700 feet below sea level. So you're traveling uh, uh, a, an amount of 700 feet over the course of 18 miles. That's why he's saying he's going where? Up right? And so this is a steep uphill ascent over the course of 18 miles. It's full of massive rocks. Jericho is cliffs. And because of that, many think, and because of other information, that this was the place where Jesus was taken to be tempted by Satan. Jericho. And the details about his exact location are important because, listen, did you know that these have not always been given to us, these details? They pick up now. As he, as he approaches Jerusalem, listen, we're going to see details about where he's at in 191, 1911, 1929, 1937, 1941, 1945. I, I mean, we are seeing now these picking up of where Jesus is. And all of this is just an indication that he's drawing near to where? Jerusalem. It's time. It's game time. 
Now, this has often been confused at this point as we move on. There's been some confusion because the parallel passages say something. Matthew's account and Mark's account say this. Matthew's account says, as they went out of Jericho. Matthew's account, or Mark's account says, as they were, what? Leaving Jericho. And Luke's account says here in verse 35, as they, what? Drew near to Jericho. And so you might ask, what, what's the meaning of this? Well, it's easily explained and actually provide some history for you. There are actually two cities of Jericho. There's an Old Testament city of Jericho, which at this point had been destroyed. You remember this story, right? And Israel's occupation of the land in Joshua chapter six. It's an uninhabited city of ruins. That old Jericho is located about a mile and a half away to the northeast of New Jericho, what it's called, the second city. And so it's right on the way, on the path from the Jordan. You cross the Jordan from the northeast. You travel about a mile, four and a half miles. You get to old Jericho, which is still northeast. You travel another mile and a half to New Jericho, which is still northeast of 18 miles to where? Jerusalem. That's the path. So pretty clear. We know exactly where he's at. This event takes place as he's leaving old Jericho and as he's approaching where? New Jericho. Right there. We know exactly where he is. Right? They're drawing near. And Luke tells us in 19 verse 1, just flip over your Bible for a second, your page for a second, and says he, in verse 1 of chapter 19, he enters where? Jericho. So he's not entered it yet. He's drawing near to entering it. And then we'll even see later on in 19, uh, you know, 1 through 10, that he spends the night there in Jericho with who? Who? Zacchaeus. Right? So this is where he's at. Now understand what else is happening. Matthew says there's a large crowd. You know what else, where he's near right now? He's near Bethany. You know what he did in Bethany? He, oh, he rose Lazarus from the what? Dead. Okay, so now you got these people coming out everywhere. You got this crowd going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. You got all these people in Bethany who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. He's traveling through. People are coming out of their houses. There's a large crowd. It's being stirred. He's drawing near to Jericho. And now there's a man, verse 35, please note, sitting by the roadside, what? Begging. Now there's also another difference here. I told you there's a lot under this surface. Matthew tells us that there's two blind men. Matthew 20, 30 says, and behold, there were two blind men and they were sitting by the roadside. And Mark tells us something even more different. One of them, he gives us his name. He says, there's one blind man and then he gives us his name. Mark 10, 46, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, and the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. Again, easily explained in a little bit of insight, right? Some suggested that because these accounts, right, you got Matthew leaving Jericho with two beggars. You got Mark leaving Jericho with one beggar named Bartimaeus. You got Luke as they're approaching Jericho with one beggar who's unnamed. That, the, that this is, um, these are all three different accounts. And that's um, incredibly unlikely because of the content of the event, the exact location, the point in the journey, 
that God would give us three nearly identical events consecutively and have all three synoptic writers write about these parallel events at this point would be very unlikely. So you, you listen, you got to understand this, okay? There's some times where you have the same event and it's placed at different points in the gospels, the synoptics, and you got to be careful not to just completely supplement these, these passages because their placement in the gospels is meaningful. You got other times where there's similar events, similar teaching, but they're not the same. Jesus taught the same thing at different points in the journey. And you got to be careful not to supplement at those times either, because there's different points. You got to see Jesus sometimes switches the wording just slightly, right? So you got to be careful just because something's similar doesn't mean it should be supplemented. But when you have established parallels, parallel accounts like this one, in fact, you put it together and it gives you a more full picture of what's actually happening. And so the difference regards to the beggars is that Luke and Mark are simply focusing on one of the two beggars, and his name is Bartimaeus. Now, why does he do that? Well, the reason is because at this time, when these gospels are written, Bartimaeus is a, probably a known member of the church. And so they're writing at this time that the readers would know this man who this account is about. This is not something mystical or something just like, I mean, this is real. This is, this is literal. They, they know a man named Bartimaeus who this happened to. How do we know that? Well, even furthermore, look at the end of the passage. It says he follows Jesus, verse 43. So listen now, it, being so close to Passover, the crowd heading to Jerusalem, uh, undoubtedly this man follows Jesus into Jerusalem. He's probably there at the triumphal entry, maybe even for the trials and the crucifixion, maybe even gathered in, with the 120 in the upper room on Pentecost. I mean, this dude's known, right? And so they give his name. This is exactly what's happening. Verse 35, it says that he was blind and what? He was blind, sitting by the roadside, and then he was doing what? Begging. Listen. He blind. Later on, Jesus is going to say, recover your sight, which indicates that this man wasn't born blind. Right? And perhaps it came from injury or disease. And blindness at this time was very common. You know that. You've read some of this. There's numerous accounts in the Gospels. Jesus even used this common ailment, blindness, as a metaphor for someone's spiritual condition, right? And that's how common it was. And so the Jews believed blindness, like all disabilities, were a sign of God's what? Judgment. A sign of someone's sin. You can see the assumption very clearly. Look at John 9. As he passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, this is the assumption. You're an outcast. You're begging. Begging for alms is how you survive. You can't fulfill any of the ceremonial requirements. Uh, this is a picture of God's judgment. You're an outcast. And it's not just that someone like, you know, is walking around with a stick to help him and everybody's opening the door for him and trying to, I mean, the, everyone who passes by this man shows disdain towards this man because of his condition. And the only way for him to survive is to beg. This man is incredibly different from the blind, the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler that we saw just a little bit ago? Think about this. The rich young ruler, he has everything. This man has what? Nothing. Uh, the rich young ruler could see. This man 
has no physical eyes to see, but he's got spiritual eyes to see, as we're going to see in a minute. The rich young ruler would turn away from following Jesus while this man would follow him. The rich young ruler left sorrowful because he worshiped his money and his job and his, uh, and his savings account, right? And his possessions, it says. Remember when we went back there? And this man has nothing, but he's gonna leave with joy and glorifying God because he's gonna have salvation. I mean, this man just, these are two very different opposite people and the, the display is how they respond to the Lord, right? So verse uh, uh, 35 tells us he's at the roadside and he's begging. And by the way, you know what's gonna come true? Look, just look in your Bibles. Look at Luke 18, 28 through 30. Look at what Jesus says. It says this, Peter said to him, see, we have left our homes and followed you. This is gonna come true right before your eyes. This, this verse right here, verse 29. He said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, wife, brothers, sister, uh, parents, children for, the, for my, uh, the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. That's about to happen to this blind man. We're about to see it fulfilled, that promise. So verse 36, look at it. It says, hearing a what? crowd going by, right? So you got Bartimaeus here. And Bartimaeus didn't have any physical eyes to see, but he had physical ears to hear. And he heard what was more than a a usual commotion going on in the street, right? He's just sitting there. Undoubtedly, there's so many on the road during this time traveling for the Passover And something, though, was unique. This was the road to Jerusalem. There's a lot of people, but at this point, something is extremely unique. And Bartimaeus is sitting there. He can't see a thing. He's just listening to it. He's begging for alms. He's desperate. He's been seen as a a man who's under the judgment of God. He's got nothing to offer. All he he can do is, is, is randomly just ask, right? And he hears this commotion. Something's unique. And verse 36 says... He inquired what that, this meant. Look at verse 36. Hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. You know what that means? It means he's just sitting there speaking out loud, asking someone to give him an answer. He needs clarity about what's happening. I mean, listen, listen now. This, you gotta put yourself in the situation before you see the resolution of it. Like, this man is desperate. He's seen to be under God's judgment. He's blind, he's poor. Everyone's going up to Jerusalem to fulfill their religious obligations. He's not going. I mean, he's an outcast of the society. Uh, I mean, he is a, a sinner by everyone's account. And this man knows he's a sinner and he knows he's, He knows his true condition. That's where we're at here. Verse 37. He asked what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Right? Now, this is significant. So listen close. They, meaning the people in the crowd, they told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And Jesus was called this. You know that? You've heard this before. Jesus of Nazareth, because people were obviously, they knew where Jesus was from. People were called this, and that's a normal way of describing somebody in the Bible. 
uh, their first name and then uh, where they're from, right? And this is obvious. Matthew 2 tells us this. He went to live in a city called what? Nazareth. And he was spoken of that, that he might be spoken of uh, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is, this is very normal. You're going to see even in the book of, of Acts, the disciples call him, the apostles, Jesus of Nazareth, right? This is very normal. But here, it's special. You want to know why? And this is what I'm telling you under the surface. Because the prophecies about the Messiah was that he was to be born in where? Bethlehem. And we see it, Micah 5, 2. Here's the prophecy about it. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, watch this, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem, a perfect fulfillment, right, of God's plan. But he, Mary was traveling there for the what? Census, right? But you see the unbelief of some in the New Testament as citing this detail. That he, isn't he supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Because they knew, that, knew him to be from where? Nazareth. And so look at John 7. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is, this, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ is to come from the offspring of who? David, right? Isn't he supposed to come from the offspring of David and comes from where? Bethlehem, the village where David was from. And so although this term is normal and it's appropriate, the fact that it's juxtaposed here with what the blind man calls him is significant. The crowd says Jesus of what? Nazareth, which is literally connected with the idea of where he's from and where he's from is connected with his fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and, and the fact that he's the offspring of David from Beth. I mean, this is connected. And so the juxtaposition here is that the crowd says this Man is from Nazareth, but the blind man says he's the son of what? David. I mean, this is intentional because this is aiming to point out his messiahship. The crowd is fickle in their unbelief. This is clear here. They, they believe one day he might be the messiah. The other day they're saying, yeah, but he's from Nazareth even after the miracle is before, performed. If you look at verse 43, it says the crowd does what? They, they all give praise to God. You know what that same crowd's about to do in just a little bit? Kill him. I mean, if you want to see the fickleness of the crowd, I mean, even look at verse 39. When the man cries out for mercy, the, blind, the, the crowd says what? They rebuke him. They say, shh, be quiet. You're crying out for Jesus? Be quiet. Right? And then in Mark's account, he's going to tell us that when, when Jesus says, hey, go get that blind man and bring him to me, then they're all excited and they say, hey, he's calling you. I mean, they're just fickle. You ever meet people like this? Who just one day, they're like, I love Jesus with all my heart. I'm living for him. He's my Lord and Savior. He's, you know, et cetera. And then the next minute, they're just rejecting him because they don't, he doesn't meet their expectation, doesn't give them what they want. You meet people like this? That's the evidence of an unbeliever. This is the crowd here. 
And then this is the blind man. And what Jesus is doing now is showing that he is the son of David. And he's going to do so through a divine act of mercy, an authoritative divine act of mercy. This providential situation is happening that he would confirm his messiahship. So Jesus is the one here. And he's, they're calling him this, this fickle, the, the fickleness of the crowd is saying Jesus of Nazareth, but we're, we're seeing that he's gonna show them that he's actually what the blind man says he is. So the contrast here between the crowd and the blind man highlight the blind man's belief and the crowd's unbelief. Now listen now, I want to tell you something, and this is really important before we move to our second point. This is not just a general unbelief. This is a specific unbelief. It's highlighting the fact that they don't believe in his messiahship. You gotta understand, as we approach Jerusalem, Jesus is confirming this. That might not be your top priority. You might say, well, I wanna know here, like, how does this apply to my life? Like, what do I do from here? Listen, you know what Jesus' priority here is in this text? To show his messiahship. We gotta align our priorities with his. That's what he's doing here. And he's showing this over and over again, right? He is the Messiah, and he's gonna confirm this through an authoritative, merciful act. The crowds might not believe it. The blind man does believe it. The disciples believe it, but don't understand how the suffering is gonna work in, right? But this is what he's doing. And now he's, listen now, listen, listen. He is making this very explicit and very public. This is a messianic, uh, claim to his identity, and he's going to confirm it publicly on the way to Jerusalem for all to see. The time has come. Now, watch this, John 7. Remember this? So his brother said to him, leave here, go to Judea. This was earlier. Go to your Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. Ready? Look at this. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Why are you working in secret if you seek to be known openly? He says, they said, if you do these things, show yourselves to the world. Show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him at that point. You imagine? Not even his own family. Brothers and sisters, they didn't believe in him. When Jesus said to them, what? My time has not what? Yet come. Meaning this. I'm not showing myself openly yet because when I do, what's about to happen? I'm about to suffer. He says this, but your time is always here. Meaning this, my time's not yet come. I got a short amount of time. I got to do certain works before I die. You're going to be here for a while longer, right? And the world can't hate you. It's not going to hate the disciples just yet because he's still there. So it's gotta, it's, he's going to overshadow them. They're going to hate him, right? And why does Jesus say that they're going to hate him, the world? Because they, he testifies what? About it, that it's works are evil. And by the way, did you know that? That's why the world hates Jesus. It just says it very clear because in sharing the gospel, in the gospel message, it says that every man's works are what? Evil, right? So when you share the gospel and the world hates you, right? That's why. Because what you share is in essence a message that says on your own, your works are what? Evil and you need saving, Right? That, that's how it works. So this is the situation. An outcast, unable to fulfill any religious duty. 
no chance of making it to Jerusalem for the Passover or fulfilling any ceremonial requirement required by the law. You got, he's rejected in society. He's labeled as a sinner already judged by God. He's physically blind and the crowd is, is fickle in their belief in Jesus. And one minute calling him the Messiah, the other saying he can't be it. And so this sets, him up, sets us up number two for the solemn plea. The solemn plea. This sets us up for the next thing we see, which is the blind man's plea to Jesus, verses 38 through 39. Now watch this. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Me. Now watch this. As soon as this man is told Jesus is passing by, just look at this. Look at verse the transition from 38 to, or 37 to 38. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out. I mean, that was his instant response to when he heard that Jesus was passing by. He cries out, his immediate response. And you know the Greek word that Matthew uses in his account? It means to, to scream like an animal. So just picture this scene. And he says this, verse 38. Now listen, this is the key. Jesus, son of who? David. That's the point here. That's not a big deal to you. Unless you know the scriptures and know that that's a big deal. He's the son of David. In contrast to the crowd's description, this is the blind man's description. This is a messianic confession that has great significance. That's why it's clear here what's happening. He's confirming his messiahship through an authoritative divine act of mercy. This title explicitly identifies him as the Christ. It means more than just the fact that like David was his great, 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 right? It means more. It means he's the Christ. If you see in Matthew 12, right after he heals a demon-possessed man, they ask this. The people were amazed. And they said, can this be the, what, son of David? Meaning, is he the Messiah? Right? And this specific title of the Messiah speaks to his fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Okay? You got to understand this. He was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the new what? Covenant. He's fulfillment of all of it. He just told us this a passage ago. He's the fulfillment of the scriptures. You understand? Listen. So, Here's the Davidic covenant. You say, well, what is the Davidic covenant? Well, it's the covenant that God made with David. It's very clear. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Ever. That's, they didn't understand. How's this Messiah going to die, right? That's why I, now you're starting to put these pieces together. But this is what he's fulfilling. It speaks to his Messiahship, but specifically his kingship. He's the eternal, permanent, better king. 
They didn't understand that what needed to come first was a spiritual kingdom through repentance of sin, faith in Christ, coming under his reign and rule, you enter his spiritual kingdom of salvation. And then in the future, his visible kingdom will come, right? They didn't understand all this, but he is the Davidic covenant. David would have a son who would reign over God's kingdom forever. Solomon wasn't the man. Solomon messed it up because of his sin. He was imperfect, temporary king. You say, how do I interpret Solomon's life like that? He was a temporary king who was not the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He divided the kingdom. That's when the kingdom was divided, the two kingdoms of Israel, right? That's through, through him. And Jesus was the fulfillment of the Messianic promise. Now, I want to take you a step further here. Watch. This is a messianic confirmation, kingship, and kingship, specifically, he's pointing to his, listen now, authority, authority. When you speak of the, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant here in his kingship, you're speaking of, listen, authority. That's what's happening here. He's showing through his healing of this blind man that he has the what? Authority. Remember this? Remember early in Luke when he was healing death and disease and demons and he had victory over nature like he told the waves to stop? What was that showing? The son of man, the divine son of man, he's the Messiah through the displays of his what? Authority and power. He's confirming now this Davidic kingship claim through his authority over the blind man's disease right? That's exactly what's happening here. This is the permanent king. And authority is in view. How do we know that? Well, let me just tell you, if we go further from here, I'm not going to take the time to do it, right? But if we go further from here in this narrative, you have authority in, with Zacchaeus. How should one respond to his authority? You know what, how Zacchaeus responds? Yes, Lord. And he says, I'm going to give you my service and I'm going to give you my life. And then if you go further, listen, listen closely. After Zacchaeus, you have a parable where Jesus is explicitly telling a story of people who are rejecting coming under his what? Authority. And then if you go further from there, Jesus will triumphantly enter into Jerusalem displaying his what? Authority He's the king. And then you will move from there and Jesus will flip tables. And that shows his what? Authority. And then his authority is going to be challenged. I mean, all of this is culminating right now. He's the king. He's the offspring of David. He's fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's got all authority to save, to save, to save, to save. No one can save except through him. He's going to show that in a minute, but he's displaying that through a visible act of authority and divine mercy. He's confirming this. And did you know that after these three events in Jericho, the two blind men, Zacchaeus, the gospel writers record no further conversion until the thief on the cross and the Roman soldier by the cross. So he's showing his authority, but his authority is going to be what? What? Rejected. Rejected. 
which is gonna lead to his suffering. His authority is in view here. He's the king. He's the son of David. Now, let me point out a couple more things about the son of David, and then we'll move to point three. We'll be done. You remember this in the beginning of Luke? He's fulfilling this now. Luke 1, he will, this is what the angel said to, to Mary. You remember this? He will be great and be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, who? David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom, there shall be no end. And you know, in Matthew's account, listen, if you read Matthew's account, the genealogies in the beginning that you're like, I don't even understand this. Where do they trace back to? David. And and that's through Joseph's line. And then you get to Luke's gospel and they trace this genealogy back and it's all different. You're like, is this, what's going on here? Well, it leads back to who again? David, and it's through Mary's line. And what it's showing is the fact that he is the Davidic offspring. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant by legal right through the dad and by descendant, by by descent through Mary's line. I mean, all of this is pointing to who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the son of David. And the blind man has eyes to see it. He says this, verse 39, have what? Mercy on. This man claims to have no merit, nothing to give to Jesus. He understands his condition. His disease is not only in view here. Listen now. It's not just his disease. He's under, as seen, the judgment of who? God. Mercy. I need mercy in every single way. I've got nothing to offer this high king who alone has the authority to declare me right and in his kingdom. I have nothing to offer. That's how true salvation comes. The minute you think you have any righteousness in yourself before God, you have discredited any of uh, uh, any, any um, thing that you would understand about the gospel in order to truly be saved. I mean, I mean, the idea is that you come to Christ with zero to offer. The only reason you would be saved is because Christ died for sins. That's how you're truly saved. If God were to say to you, when you get to his Gates, what have you done to enter my kingdom? You would have one answer only. Nothing but Christ. He died for sin. And so the man understands his condition. He needs mercy. And ironically, we've seen this in the, a lot of times in the gospels. It's not just for the physical hearing, healing. It's for salvation. And now listen to this. Listen to this. You know who else cries out like this? David. Remember Psalm 51? He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. So verse 39. I think we got a lot of the hard work done. Verse 39. Those who are in front of him rebuked him. It's clear here, right? You know what the crowd is literally saying to him? If you look at the Greek, they're saying, shut up. Shut up. And what's in view here is not like when the disciples bring the children to Jesus and the, and, or the parents do and the disciples stop him. It's not like that. It's not that's why they're stopping him. He doesn't need to be bothered. This crowd is stopping him in light here, in the context here, specifically because of the title they're giving to him. Son of David. Right? And so you're starting to just feel these rumblings of rejection and public confession and, 
and they show no compassion. They have zero similarity to the heart of Jesus. They reject, they tell him to shut up. And then Jesus instead says, come here, right? And so they tell him to be quiet. And then verse 39, it says, those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he what? He did what? He cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He repeats the exact same thing. This man is determined. And the Greek word used here by his determination to cry out is a different Greek word than the first cry out, which was like an animal cry. This one is an intelligible, um, intentional cry. And so it's like he is intentionally rejecting what the public is saying. Right? He said, I don't care what you say. I'm crying out for mercy. He's determined to have this salvation from Christ. Now, listen, that must be your attitude. If you were to be saved, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Forget what your family says. Who cares what the crowd says? Who cares what Mandeville and Covington says? Who cares what your boss says? Who cares what, what, what your workplace says? You want salvation? You got to be convinced. Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2? He says, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I've believed. Right? I'm convinced, he says. That's this man here. This is the believing man's desperate, convinced, humble, determined, solemn plea, which leads next to the climax, number three, the saving, verses 40 through 43. We're almost done. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Verse 40, please note it. Jesus stopped. I mean, we could talk for a very long time about that one phrase. Then he commanded him. We could talk a long time about that phrase. To be brought to him. And we could talk a long time about that. <laughs> Jesus responded in the exact opposite way of the crowd. He, he doesn't ignore the men who calls on him in genuine faith and repentance. If you truly are repentant of your sin and want genuine salvation from Christ, he will not ignore you. He responds with compassion and authority. And it's ironic that Mark's account again tells us the crowd says, take heart, he's calling you right after they've rebuked him. This is fickle, right? Here's what Mark says he does. Mark 10 says this, he throws off his cloak, springs up and comes to Jesus. And this is so contrary to the rich young ruler, Right? This symbolizes an eagerness to leave it all behind, to follow Jesus. And then verse 40, look, when he comes near, he asks him. Verse 40 says, when he came near, he asked him. And then verse 41 says, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, what a, just an exemplary picture of divine mercy, right? Like Jesus didn't have to say that. He just says that. And what do you think the man did not say here? He did not say, how about a Ferrari, Jesus? Right? So don't misunderstand this, that Jesus says that to everybody. What do you want me to do for you? Like he's a genie in a lamp. He knows what this man's going to say, and he knows what he means by what he says. It's not just for his physical sight, right? 
He comes near and he said, Lord, let me recover my sight and all that comes along with this idea. And he calls Jesus what? He said, what? What does he call him? Lord. He calls him Lord here, which is again, acknowledging his authority. It's a respect word. His authority is in view here, his kingship. And he says, let me recover my sight. And again, I just, I wish I could just sit down with you for more than this one hour, but we got to hurry up here a few more minutes and just point to this. Do you know when he says this here, the same Greek phrase is used here as in Luke 7, 22, when John's in prison, asks if Jesus is the real Christ, because this doesn't make any sense that he would be in prison if Jesus is the true king. Are you the one who's to come or should we expect another? And Jesus responds, affirming his messiahship by telling him that he does this. Look, watch Luke 7. When the men had come to him and they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, look at this. He healed many people of diseases, plagues, evil spirits, and many who were blind bestowed sight. And he said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their what? Sight. This is what the man is asking for. And this is one of another key indicator of the Messiah. This is what the Messiah would come and do. Restore sight. I mean, in every which way here, he's pointing to his messiahship, a messianic request and a messianic fulfillment. Jesus says, all right, restore your sight, recover it. But now watch this. And this is where we get to this climax and we're done. He says, your faith has made you what? Well, the verb used here. I'm sorry, the, the word used here is something that's different from, from what a physical healing would be. The Greek word here is translated well. It's not iomai, which would mean to heal. It's the word sotso, which when it says well in the New Testament, in, this, in every context that it's used, it means salvation. Your faith has made you well. And then it says, and this man recovered his what? Sight. Uh, his faith has, has, made, has saved him. This is salvation, right? This is the word that's used here. And it's used in every context in the New Testament in terms of salvation. And so we get this so wrong here. Just to mention it for a minute. First of all, when, it's this, when you see this, let me say a couple things about this. First of all, there's no shaking on the ground, no falling over, no yelling, no gibberish, no forehead push, right? This is instant, and this is not a muscle ache. This is a, an actual biological disease, and it's healed instantly by Jesus, right? Instantly. And there's, there's, there's no firework display. It's just immediate. And, Jesus, and, there, and this is just a request. It's a prayer to be healed. And God, in his sovereignty, shows mercy. Sometimes he doesn't heal. And that's okay. When he says, your faith has made you well, it's not that your faith has now healed your blindness, as if if you don't have strong enough faith, your, 
your physical healing won't come. That is a dangerous teaching. And that leads you to think to myself, well, then why did my grandpa die? I guess I didn't have strong enough what? Faith. If he is saying here, faith is necessary for salvation. Your faith has saved you. Physical healing is a divine act of mercy. Sometimes God decides not to provide it for his own glory and for your good, though you don't understand it. But it's not that if you have strong enough faith. There are many indicators throughout the entire gospel writings that people who had no prior faith were also what? Healed. It's just a divine act of mercy. You can request that from God anytime you want. And you receive what he gives as his sovereign Lord who decides. Right? Don't think that suffering is outside of his providential plan as if you should never suffer. As oftentimes in his plan, it was the plan of Christ to suffer for his glory. And you're good. Now we got to be done here because I'm over time. Let me just say this. Matthew had, it says, Matthew's account says he had pity on him and he touched his eyes and he immediately recovered his sight. So Mark tells us that he just said it. So it's this combination here where Jesus is touching. He's saying it. This man's restored. Exactly. It says his faith has saved him, has saved you, has made you well in terms of salvation. But Jesus also provides this gracious, miraculous, divine act of also giving the man his physical sight as a display that he has saved him, an external visible display of his authority to save as the son of David. And, uh, and then it says this. Now, just note this. We're, I know we're over, but just please note this. It says that he did what? Verse 43. He followed him. You remember in 1 John when we're reading, what's a sign of a true disciple? Following Jesus. Don't say you're, not a, you're, you're a true disciple if you're not following Jesus. And he worshiped him. He glorified him. True obedience to him and worship of him is a sign of a true disciple. It's all pointing us to this man's salvation. And then he talks about the people. And the people, it says they saw it and they gave praise to God. And let me just say this, look. Do you know this word people is used 18 more times in the book of Luke? And it always shows a vacillation between praise and rejection. People, it's just this general term. The people, always vacillating. Luke will show us. Sometimes they're praising him. Sometimes they're rejecting him. It's the people. And so you know what this picture here is? It's just a picture of praise. And in a few minutes, it's gonna be a picture of rejection from these same people. But the man was saved and follows him because he believes he's the Christ. Follow him. He's the Christ. He's got divine authority to save as the only one. Call out to him for mercy and compassion and follow him. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would take this. There's so much here under the surface that is just so hard to do in in a short amount of time. I, I pray that you'd be merciful to me and be merciful to the rest of us, that we would look at your word, that we would see it for what it is, that we'd spend even more time in this passage. Uh, we, there is so much under the surface, so much going on here, and I pray that we would take heed to its teachings for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure. 